Good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, uh, our sermon text for this morning is Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, though I'll really be focusing on just the first three verses, a little more than the fourth, which we'll pick up next week. Um, uh, if you've been around for a while, you know that uh, we were working through the book of First Peter. We finished that up uh, just last week, and so we're starting Hebrews this morning, and uh, it'll be a little longer than First Peter. Uh, being a longer book and, and uh, in some ways a denser book uh, than most. Uh, but uh, it's, it's going to be a, a good study encouraging us to look to Christ, which is what the entire book does. So uh, before we read Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we need to hear your voice uh, right now, we need to hear uh, your word. Uh, we need to hear about the living word, our Lord Jesus, the incarnate word. Uh, we, need, um, we need you to speak to us about your son. And uh, we pray that you would encourage us as we hear about him, as we hear about who he is and what he has done. We pray that you would strengthen our hearts and enable us to, uh, to serve you and live for you in the world. Um, Pour out your spirit on us right now to those ends, to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." Well, I wonder if you face life with confidence. Now, confidence is a kind of uh, self-help, kind of pep talk, inspirational speaker type word. Uh, people talk about building your confidence and boosting your confidence and gaining and growing confidence. Um, of course, the kind of confidence that most people are talking about is self-confidence. Psychology today defines confidence as, it says, confidence can be described as a belief in oneself, that one has the ability to meet life's challenges and to succeed. But of course, self-confidence can only get you so far in life. Thankfully, self-confidence is not the only kind of confidence there is. Confidence is a, is a biblical concept. Uh, in fact, it's a recurring theme in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6 talks about holding fast our confidence. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews 10.19 says, We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And Hebrews 10.35 and 36 says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 
In all of these uh, passages, the writer of Hebrews is talking uh, fundamentally about confidence in our relationship to God through Christ. Uh, he, he wants us not to shrink back, but to lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees and make straight paths for our feet so we can run the race set before us with confidence. Here's what the, the writer of Hebrew knows that we might not. He knows that you cannot run the race of the Christian life without confidence in your relationship to the Father. At least you can't run the race of the Christian life well without confidence in your relationship to the Father. In fact, you can't live well at all apart from this confidence. Uh, Why is that? Well, apart from confidence in our relationship to the Father, when, when we are uncertain about His love, we end up being fearful, fearful that, that God is out to get us. We end up consumed with the opinions of others. We're constantly seeking to, to promote ourselves or prove ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, so that we and everybody else and even God himself will know how great we really are. All of which tends, of course, to leave us not with confidence, but even more insecure. And so we live in fear swallowed by guilt, wallowing in self-pity, self-conscious, self-critical, self-obsessed. And those things distract us, right? They they hinder us in life in general and and in the Christian life in particular because we're we're not free to love others because we are consumed with protecting ourselves. Of course, here's what this means for the Christian life. It, It means your first priority is to gain this confidence, to find the confidence needed to run well. Again, there, there are various ways that we try to do this, right? The first of, is always self-reliance. If only I can gain a little self-confidence, then I'll have what it takes, we think. But we're quick to realize I'm not really a very reliable source of help or hope. And I tend to fail myself, much less other people. Life's challenges are sometimes too big for me. And we begin to ask the question, what if, I, what if I don't have what I need to succeed? And so self-confidence goes out the window. And so we move on to, to self-improvement, right? Well, maybe, maybe I don't have what it takes now, but if I work hard enough, if I can only gain a few more skills, a few more tricks, a few more life hacks, then I'll have it all figured out. I constantly fall into this trap with, with productivity, right? I think uh, I, if, if I can only figure out the right formula, then I think my, my days, my week, my life will be a little more productive, and therefore, you know, I'll be more happy because I'll get more done. It hasn't worked yet. When all this fails, uh, we, we, can't, you know, we can't find confidence in ourselves. Self-improvement just doesn't seem to work. We, we tend to turn to self-deception, right? We just fake it. Um, we pretend, we, we lie to others, we lie to ourselves. Maybe if I just tell myself, I'm enough, often enough, eventually I'll believe it and I'll feel better about life. Or finally, right, if, we just, if, we, if we're honest with ourselves but we want to avoid despair, we just put our head down and we just plow forward. We, we reject kind of the, the pep talk, the inspirational speak of the self-help gurus and just, just plow forward, just hoping for the best. We talk about stealing ourselves for the troubles of life, which in this case often means we harden our hearts and just keep our head down and move forward. Well, the writer of Hebrews wants to take us down a different road. 
He, he wants to engender confidence in his hearers. And so he gives us something, or rather someone, to be confident in. Our outline uh, this morning, which serves as, as both an outline of our, our text, uh, but also an introduction to the message of the book of Hebrews, is this. The climactic message of the gospel about the completed work of Christ gives us the confidence to run the race. Uh, I should say two uh, brief things before we jump in, in <clears throat> about the book of Hebrews in general. Uh, the, the first is this. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, there is a lot of speculation, and all of it is interesting, but none of it is determinative. And so I could talk, I could spend you know, the next half hour talking about who wrote the book of Hebrews, and in the end, we'd come to the same conclusion. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, some think it was the Apostle Paul. Uh, others say it was Barnabas or Apollos or Luke. Uh, that is Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. All of those are interesting suggestions. People have lots of good reasons why it's this person or that, uh, but in the end, we don't know. None of those reasons are determinative. And truth be told, in the end, of course, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it doesn't matter because God in his providence has given us this anonymous book, and it is a treasure for the church. Which brings us to the second uh, point about the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is full of deep theology. Uh, the writer of Hebrews himself says at one point, solid food is for the mature. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. This book is solid food. It is meat and not milk. It is deep and not shallow. It is weighty and not light. But it's going somewhere. Hebrews is actually, fundamentally, it's not a book of theology. It's an exhortation. It is a sustained exhortation over uh, particularly the first 12 chapters. The writer of Hebrews wants us to listen to the message of Jesus and run the race set before us. He wants to give us a message that will enable us to live well even in the midst of the challenges and trials of life. Hence our outline this morning. The climactic message of the gospel about the completed work of Christ gives us the confidence to run well. So first, the climactic message of the gospel. Who, uh, who do you listen to in life? Uh, we, we listen to our own feelings often. Uh, we listen to the messages of pop culture around us. We listen to the, the criticism of those around us. Uh, we listen to the advice, sometimes, of family and friends. Uh, or we're so busy doing that we don't have time to listen to anyone at all. But the writer of Hebrews wants us to listen. And yet he doesn't begin by telling us, uh, certainly not to follow our heart or follow the crowd, but he doesn't even begin by telling us to, to listen at all. He begins by telling us that God himself has spoken. Now, sometimes, of course, people deny that God has spoken or even that God can speak clearly anyway. Um, atheists, of course, say that there is no God. Agnostics say that we cannot know him, and both thereby deny the, the speech of God. Uh, but the writer of Hebrews says, no, no, God, God has spoken. Now, now, there are others who go the other way. Uh, God speaks all the time through everything, right? God or the universe or the higher power of your choosing, right, is speaking at every moment if you will only listen. 
But the writer of Hebrews doesn't go there either. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now, notice uh, right away where he starts, what, what he's doing. The writer of Hebrews is drawing out a series of contrasts between two different ways in which God has spoken. Uh, the first contrast is a contrast in time. Uh, God spoke long ago, on the one hand, in the days of Abraham and Moses and David, and God has spoken in these last days. Now, the word last in Greek is the word eschatos, which uh, sounds completely irrelevant to you, probably, but I point that out because that's where we get the word eschatology, which is the doctrine of the last things. Uh, According to the book of Hebrews, the last days have begun, and we are living in them. Uh, The writer of Hebrews has what, what theologians call a realized eschatology, that is, the last things have come. Now, it will become clear as we read through the book of Hebrews that there's still more to come. But the point is, the period of time that Scripture refers to as the last days has already begun. Because God has spoken, past tense, in them, in these last days. So first, there's this contrast of God's speech in time. Second, there's a contrast of God's speech in manner. Long ago, God spoke at many times and in many ways by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken by his Son. Uh, Now, this contrast is is one uh, between variety and and singularity, right? Uh, Between the, the many times and the many ways and the many prophets, but the one Son. And this highlights the uniqueness, but also the finality of God's speech in his Son. The writer will later contrast the many Levitical priests with the climactic priesthood of Christ. And he'll contrast the many sacrifices offered in the temple with the climactic sacrifice of Christ. And so here he contrasts the many ways and the many times and the many prophets and God's speech through his Son. And the point is, what is repeated because it's incomplete comes to an end because what is perfect and final has come. And so there's this contrast. There's this contrast in time and manner of God's speech. And third, there's a contrast in the hearers. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us. Now, don't miss what just happened. Uh, the, The writer of Hebrews says, God has spoken to us by his Son. Now, the truth is, those who originally read his letter never heard the incarnate Jesus. We know this because in chapter 2, verse 3, we are told it was attested to us, again, us, by those who heard. Right? So there were those who heard Jesus, and then there's the us of the, the Hebrews. And here's the, uh, so, so if they've never heard the incarnate Jesus, if they've never heard the incarnate and risen Lord, how can the writer say, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son? And here's the answer. The answer is that the message of Christ was spoken by God for all people in all times henceforth. Uh, That this message was for those who saw the risen Jesus and for the next generation after that and for every generation since. 
God's message in Christ was and is and ever will be to us, whoever that us might be. Why is that? Well, because God's word is living and active, according to Hebrews chapter 4, right now. And it addresses us right now. And so as I proclaim to you the gospel, God is speaking to you right now. We're not simply discussing a message from the past, but we are hearing God speak in the present. Reading scripture is not an archaeological dig, but a present address by the living God to those who hear. Hence Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Meaning now, right now, as you hear the word of Christ, do not harden your heart. So we have this series of contrasts, of time, of manner, of the hearer. But the point is, is not an absolute contrast, of course, between disconnected realities. Uh, God's message through the prophets, he's saying, is, is preparatory. And God's message in Christ is climactic. Uh, that will be clear from everything the writer will say as we move forward in the book of Hebrews, that what God said in times past points us to what happens in Jesus. It's all leading in that direction. This is what Peter said back in 1 Peter 1.10. You may remember Peter said, concerning this salvation in, in Jesus, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. See, the word of the prophets, according to Peter and according to the writer of Hebrews, the word of the prophets was a prediction of the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so Christ having come, we have this unique final speech of the Father in the Son. Jesus is the, the climax of God's story, the, the finale of God's masterpiece, the turning point of all history. God's message is now complete because the Son has come. Uh, one way of seeing the connection between God's speech long ago and his speech in the Son, of course, is to go read the Old Testament. Just go read it and see Christ there. And yet sometimes we read the Old Testament and, and we're confused. We miss it. We don't see it. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to be our guide. The whole book will show us how God's spoken word in the past comes to its climax in God's living and incarnate word, Jesus, who is God's message to us. And so are you listening? As we approach this book, are you listening? Are you ready to hear what God has to say? Well, this brings us to our next point, the climactic message of the gospel about the completed work of Christ. When you, uh, when you listen to people, why do you believe some people and not others? You know, in our age of, of disinformation and fake news, you're inclined to believe some news outlets and not others. And it may be different ones for different people in this room. But why? Right? Uh, why is that? Why have some people earned your trust and others not? How does that happen? Right? How does someone earn your trust so that you're willing to believe what they have to say? Well, we read in verse 2, God has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The writer of Hebrews wants to give us confidence. He wants to give us confidence as we listen to the message of the gospel. But first, he has to give us confidence in the message of the gospel. Right? So he wants to give us confidence 
through the message of the gospel, but he first must give us confidence in that message. And here's how he does it. He, he points to the person of Jesus. Christianity, you probably know, stands or falls with Jesus. The writer of Hebrews then gives us this mini-theology of who Jesus is in these first few verses. He gives us a, a mini-Christology, as theologians say, and he really only has two points, but they're two important points. The writer of Hebrews tells us about the perfected humanity of Jesus and the eternal divinity of Jesus. Let's start with his eternal divinity. Verse 3, we are told, uh, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The, the glory of God is the, the sum total of who he is put on display. It's his, his majesty, his character for all to see. Jesus is that display. He is the, the glory of God, the radiance of the Father's glory. He is like his Father in every way, the writer says, the language of, of imprint comes from a, a mold or a seal which produces an exact copy when pressed into the wax. And the point is to say, as the Father, so the Son. The identity between the Father and Son is so complete. Of course, Jesus can say to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. As Paul puts it elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And yet, there's still a distinction, right, between the Father and the Son, right? The Son is an exact imprint of the Father. So their nature is the same, though their personhood, Father and Son, is distinct. Unless we think that somehow, uh, maybe Jesus became the imprint of the Father at some point in time, uh, we're told in verse 2 that Jesus, uh, we're told of Jesus in verse 2, through whom also he, God the Father, created the world. Right? Jesus' divinity is eternal. God the Father created the world through God the Son. He, he's not a latecomer to deity, right? There, there was no time when the Son was not. In fact, time itself was made through him. And some think that Jesus was God, but then he ceased to be God when, uh, when, uh, in the Incarnation. But that is, some believe that some believe that when Jesus became a man, he stopped being God. But that, too, clearly is wrong. According to Hebrews, verse 3 adds, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Son upholds the universe. The Son who shares our flesh and blood, according to Hebrews 2.14. The, the Son who is made like His brothers in every respect, according to Hebrews 2.17. The Son who sympathizes with our weaknesses and who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, according to chapter 4.15. This Son is the one who upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is the very thing Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. He says, For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Here is the eternal divinity of Jesus. He is the, the radiance of the glory of the Father, the exact imprint of his nature. Through him the Father created the world and he upholds all things by the word of his power. I just marvel at that for a moment. I marvel even at the fact, you know, uh, sometimes people say, uh, 
the early Christians, you know, generations later, they kind of developed this idea that Jesus was God. But this is, not, this is not some late book written, you know, centuries after Jesus. This is still within the first century. You know, within, within 50 years of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, maybe less than 50 years, people were saying, he is the God who created the world. What happened to give them such a radical view of who this Jesus was? Well, the, the resurrection. Which brings us, of course, to the next point, to Jesus' humanity. Now, the writer of Hebrews not only describes Jesus' eternal divinity, he also describes Jesus' perfected humanity. He begins that in verse 2, when we're told that the Father appointed Jesus the heir of all things. And in his humanity, Jesus underwent a, a trial, a test of his obedience. And when he passed the test, the Father appointed him the heir, the heir of everything. Uh, this is the, in fulfillment of Psalm 2, which the writer of Hebrews will quote later on, where Jesus says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. You see, according to uh, Paul in Acts 13, th this declaration of Jesus' sonship was at the resurrection, meaning that Jesus, with respect to his humanity, was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. That was not clear to everyone prior to the resurrection. But having been declared Son of God as the God-man, God gave Jesus the nations as his heritage. Jesus became the heir of all things as the reward for his obedience. Now, what was it that exactly that Jesus did? What was his, what, in what did his obedience consist? What is it that he did that merited such a reward? Hebrews tells us, again, in verse 3, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, Jesus has done what no other man or woman could do. He has made purification for sins. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. This is the message of the gospel. We're going to see it again and again, the, the completed work of Christ in making purification for sins. You see, ever since Adam, we, we have been weighed down by sin's guilt and impurity. We have been enslaved by the fear of death. We have been plagued by an evil conscience. But Jesus comes to cleanse us once and for all and to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. We're going to talk quite a bit about sacrifice as we work through the book of Hebrews. And so if, if that very concept makes you a bit squeamish, uh, which sometimes it does for people, I would say don't, don't run away, stick around. Right? We'll dig into the question of just why God would use what to us seems like a fairly backward concept of sacrifice to talk about the high point of his love in Christ. But for now, let me just say this. The end of all of this is confidence. It is. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, Jesus is seated on that throne of grace. He, he sat down, the writer tells us, multiple times, he tells us. And that sitting may not seem important to you, but it tells us something immensely important. That Jesus' work is finished. 
That, that, that grace is found at that throne only because Jesus is seated on it, having completed the work that the Father gave him to do. He completed the work of our salvation. And so we can draw near to the throne of grace and find mercy in grace. Right? This, this means for us, uh, again, confidence, mercy, grace. Do you, do you feel your need of grace? Do you feel the, the, the burden of sin? Do you feel the weight of life in a broken world? Do you feel the, the fear of guilt and shame? Do you feel uncertain about what comes next? The goal of Jesus' work is that you might have confidence to draw near and find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. He is the eternal God who has entered into our humanity, perfected it, completed our mission and his, made purification for sins by the sacrifice of himself, and is now seated at the Father's right hand in glory, ready to offer mercy and grace to us in our time of need. Which brings us to our last point. The climactic message of the gospel about the completed work of Christ gives us the confidence to run well. Where, where does the, the power come from to be faithful to your spouse, to be patient with your kids, to persevere in your work, to, to bear up under suffering, to, to maintain your Christian profession, to, to get out of bed in the morning, to get out of the house every day, to, to move toward reconciliation in, in broken friendships, to, to forgive when you've been wronged, to admit when you're the one who's done the wronging, to, to care for those in need, to go the extra mile, to love the enemy to do good to those who have talked bad about you? Where does the power come from to keep going in the Christian life? It comes from confidence grounded in Jesus. Confidence that my sins are forgiven. Confidence that the Father accepts me. Confidence that, that God's presence is with me. Confidence that I can draw near and find grace to help. Confidence of my heavenly reward. Confidence that suffering does not mean the Father has abandoned me. Confidence in Christ. Confidence to, to face today and tomorrow and the next day, running the race set before me. That doesn't come from self-improvement. It doesn't come from mind games. Confidence is not a belief in yourself that you have the ability to meet life's challenges. Confidence is a belief in Christ that you can do all things through him who strengthens you, which means, which means in context, in Philippians, which means you can face the hardships of life clinging to Jesus. That is why the writer of Hebrews keeps pointing us to Jesus. He says things like, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And, and since we have a great high priest, and, and look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's saying again and again on every page, don't forget the message of the gospel. Keep listening to the message of the gospel. Don't drift away from the message of the gospel. Hold fast to the message of the gospel. Given this reality, that, that the message of Jesus, the gospel, is what enables us to stand firm, is what empowers us to, to live the Christian life, is what gives us what it takes to, to persevere and run the race with confidence, Let's take this journey together as, as we go deeper into the gospel, as we find it in the book of Hebrews, to find gospel confidence to run well together. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we pray that you would give us a clear sight of who Jesus is in all of his glory. We pray that as you do that, you would grow us in a confidence in him, rooted in the gospel as we rest in your grace found in the cross and in the resurrection, 
We pray that you would empower us by your spirit through the gospel to then run the race that you have set before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.